Welcome to the Calling the Quarters podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today I'm talking with author Jamie Wagoner, who is a pagan priestess, philosopher, author, and teacher with 25 plus years of study and practice. Jamie's work centers around eclectic theurgic and folk magic, mythology, oracular traditions, trance arts, and liminal rites. Jamie has studied esoteric and occult subjects since 1995. She began her priestess path as a member of the Sisterhood of Avalon, and she now uses her skills, empathy, and experience to lead independent workshops, rituals, sacred circles, and study programs. Her work as a priestess is highlighted in the Red Tent documentary film and the Goddess of Earth Oracle. When she's not teaching or facilitating, Jamie is writing. Most recently, her essays have been featured in anthologies such as The Host of Benny, Hades and His Retinue, The Feminine Macabre, and her first full-length nonfiction book, Hades, Myth, Magic, and Modern Devotion, is forthcoming from New Orleans worldwide in February 2024. I now want to take you to my conversation with author, priestess of Hades, Jamie Wagoner. Welcome to the Calling of the Quarters podcast. Today I'm speaking with Jamie Wagoner, author of the upcoming book, Hades, Myth, Magic, and Modern Devotion. that will be out in 2024. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dean. I'm so happy to be here today. Happy to have you. Um, now, for our listeners not familiar with your work, can you talk about where you're from and where you live now? Oh, my goodness. I have lived many places. <laughs> I was born in Missouri, in mid-Missouri, and did a majority of my growing up there. But in my teenage years, my family moved to Oregon. Um, so I finished out my high school years uh, in Oregon. I went to college in northern Idaho. And immediately after college, I got married and we moved. <laughs> and uh, my husband and I, first we were in uh, Atlanta, Georgia for a number of years, um, and then Austin, Texas, and now we live in Auburn, Alabama. So I'm a wow. Southern transplant, and I actually really love it down here in the South. Nice. Well, you have been all over. What part of Idaho were you in? I went to college at the University of Idaho in Moscow, Idaho. So it's... Nice. Um, yeah, it's about an hour, hour, hour and a half from Spokane, Washington, if you're familiar with that area. Yeah, yeah I used to actually live, I'm um, in my high school years, we lived in uh, the middle part of it, uh, up near Spokane, and um, we lived in little towns all over the place. I lived in Idaho, too, in Rathdrum, if you've ever heard of that, mm -hmm. next to Coeur d'Alene, yeah. and in Lewiston. Yeah, yeah, I it was I worked at Taco really Tom. great. You worked at Taco Time. That's definitely a Pacific Northwest kind of yeah. thing. Um, no, it was great. It was a great little town um, to go to college. Um, had a really good experience there. And it's beautiful country. I don't think people realize how beautiful Idaho is. No, it's so, no, it is nice. And that town's really lovely. It's, we would kind of go there for any kind of culture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if we needed to go like see a play or music or you know anything or have you know some decent food we'd always kind of go there it was always so nice to visit that that town <laughs> now so at what point in your life did you come to paganism or witchcraft whatever you want to call yourself however you like to title yourself when was the turning point in your life when you kind of realized this would be a part of your life well, uh, it was in Idaho, actually. It was funny that we were just joking about that. Um, so I went to the University of Idaho. My bachelor's degree is in philosophy. 
And for my senior project, I was taking a lot of classes uh, on feminism, uh, history of feminism and uh, feminist philosophy. And we got into sort of the emerging uh, witchcraft and um, Dianic uh, traditions that were gaining speed at that point in time. This was uh, the late 90s when I was in college. And um, so academically, I was very interested in it. It was very different from anything that I had ever encountered before. My family is Christian. I grew up in the Christian church. So this was something new to me. And, you know, in studying it, my academic interest sort of blossomed into kind of just falling in love with the idea of um, a feminine God <laughs> or more facets to the divine than just uh, what I was hearing about in church. And so, you know, that academic interest rolled on and I read more and more and I studied and, you know, then I found myself trying to seek out uh, groups and books where I could learn more and I could bring the practice you know, into my life. So, you know, when I graduated college and we moved all the way across the country, um, it was really, it was that fall that I celebrated my first uh, ritual. It was based on, uh, loosely based on like a Wiccan type of ritual. I think I got it out of a Scott Cunningham book, <laughs> probably. And, uh, and it was, it was beautiful. It was just a solo little ritual. And, you know, I've been on this path ever since. And I, you know, I, most of the time I, I identify as being a priestess because I really feel like I serve, um, I serve gods. And to me, being a priestess is being in service. I certainly do um, pra practice magic. I teach others how to use magic. And that's definitely part of my spirituality. But I think I identify more as a priestess than a witch. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we talk about that a lot on, on the show. And I think some people have definite definitions or not. I think is the case maybe so it's like it's always interesting to hear how people kind of um talk about themselves in that context because it's different for every guest and it's kind of neat to see what that is now you, you kind of discovered paganism you know in when you were in idaho and, and you've lived in other parts of the united states and have been um kind of an open pagan have you had any difficulty or experienced any kind of hardships because you were openly pagan and, and kind of had some you know difficulties sometimes i know that Moscow is kind of nice, but like the neighboring areas where I lived, it wasn't easy. I was harassed sometimes or wasn't able to get jobs because I was very openly pagan. Yeah, um, I would say for the first, um, gosh, probably oh, 10, 12 years that I was practicing, um, practicing pagan, I did. I was very quiet about it. That's when I lived in Atlanta yeah. and I had a corporate job. <laughs> yeah. And I was in marketing, have a background in marketing and graphic design. And, you know, I just kind of kept that part of my life very separate. And, yeah. um, you know, the, definitely, we definitely the internet was a thing. And like social media was kind of coming online, like Facebook was, you know, you know, people were on MySpace before they were on Facebook and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, you know, online, it was a little bit different. I think that now it's a little bit harder to remain in the broom closet, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I just sort of little by little, especially when I moved to Austin and I no longer had to um, keep that corporate job, I think I was able to kind of talk about it a little bit more and kind of live it out loud a little bit more. And I never made like a big official announcement. I just, right. I just kind of didn't censor myself anymore. And then if people asked me direct questions about it, I was just truthful and transparent. So, 
you know, and Austin is a weird town. So yep. no keep Austin weird there. Yeah, no problems there whatsoever. I was certainly by no means the weirdest person in Austin. Um, no. You know, and then when we moved here to Alabama, I mean, it does it, it you know, it's interesting. I, I, um, it's a college town. Auburn is a college yeah. town. So, um, you know, it's a little bit more liberal than other parts of the state. And I, I kind of do the same thing. Um, in the community here, I'm known as the tarot lady, which is pretty funny. I'm sure there are other tarot readers in Auburn, Alabama, yeah. but I'm the only one that does it in public. And so, you know, I'll be walking in the grocery store and I'll see somebody and they'll go, oh, hey, hey, tarot lady. Hey, <laughs> which, you know, is, I mean, I think it's delightful. So far, um, you know, so far, I've not had any negative experiences, and I'm really grateful for that. And, yeah. you know, I do uh, a lot of protection on my my house, myself, <laughs> my family, um, using all those magical tools that I have um, to try to bolster that. So, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it could be that I'm going to run into some stuff in the future. I was I was asking, uh, I was joking around with my husband about um, having a book coming out about Hades that's going to be, you know, everywhere that books are sold. It's going to be on Amazon. I'm like, do you think that I'll get people leaving comments about how I'm, you know, trying to further the, further like the gospel of the devil? <laughs> and and um, he just, he cracked me up because he said, well, if you don't get one or two of those, you're probably not doing it right. <laughs> a good point. So, yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see how things go in the future. Can you talk about your time with the Sisterhood of Avalon um, and, and tell, tell us about that time and, and what it meant to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Sisterhood of Avalon is an international um, Celtic women's mystery tradition. It's an inclusive tradition. So anyone who identifies as a woman is welcome there. Um, it's founded by uh, a woman named Jenna Talendrew and um, who has wrote several books. You can check out the books. Avalon Within, and I think there's a couple sequels to that that talk about the basics of the tradition. Um, it's, you know, in a lot of ways, I think it's similar to um, sort of some of the Druidic orders that, that are active today. Um, we primarily focused uh, our, you know, we focused on cultivating magical skills and healing skills and worked what we called a cycle of healing that kind of worked with the seasons and worked with some of the pagan high holy days. And we also utilized the um, mythology of Wales, the mythology that's in the Mabignogian and worked with the goddesses in that book. So Caridwyn, Bronwyn, Ariane Road, Blodiaith, and um, Rhiannon. Did I say Rhiannon? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, and it was it was a tradition that, you know, it was very well researched. Jenna is a very, uh, very good scholar, very meticulous scholar. And it can it was a good combination of um, being rooted in in the mythology and rooted in history and historical practice combined with gnosis that's, you know, clearly delineated as gnosis. Right. And I just, um, I really loved it. It was beautiful tradition. And, you know, I was in it from 2005 until 2016. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think for me, I did like that combination, like I said, because being a scholar philosopher at heart, that was really important to me. But it also, um, 
it also felt very, it was an organization that felt very safe. And for me, that was important, especially coming from a background where there was, I mean, there was no discussion of witchcraft or paganism or anything like that um, as I was growing up. So, you know, as a young person, I wanted to be I wanted to learn and be with others and celebrate rituals with others, but I wanted to do it in a, in a way that felt safe to me, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and the SOA was really, uh, SOA is short for Sisterhood of Avalon. The mm -hmm. SOA was really a place where I could do that and I could grow. And I got, I received a very good foundation as a priestess there. Nice. Thank you. Um, I, I, we already mentioned this a little bit, but I kind of wanted to circle back to it because I know this is oftentimes something that's a really personal topic with a lot of um, the writers that have been on the program. Who are some of the uh, books that you read? Who are some of the authors that you read um, back when you were coming up as a pagan or even beforehand that might have influenced you that were kind of special to you? Yeah, um, I've read a lot of sort of the second wave feminists that were <laughs> that were coming yeah. through in the late 90s, um, like Starhawk. Um, Carol P. Christ, um, a lot of the folks that were active, Diane Stein, I think, a lot of people that were active during that time. And some of those folks, you know, they've fallen out of favor a little bit. Some, not all, but some, you know, some have gone a little turfy. And so, you know, they yeah. have to be really, when you look at them with a modern eye, you have to, you have to critique some of that stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of those feminist texts. And then, you know, I read Scott Cunningham's books, um, Scott's Wicca books, uh, which were really, really great. And uh, I also, let's see, what else did I read? Oh, a lot of, um, a lot of John and Kathleen Matthews. The Matthews's books yeah. um, on British spirituality, Irish spirituality, all of that. They they have a huge, I'm, I'm between the two of them, their library of publications is enormous. So I think those were some of my early influences. So what led to you becoming a writer? You've written quite a bit um, in fiction and in nonfiction publications as well. And, and we're going to talk about your upcoming book. But where did you find that you were going to follow the writer's path? What, what was the epiphany there for you? Well, ever since I learned how to read, I've wanted to be a writer ever since I was a child. Um, and, you know, it was always an, an important thing to me. And even when I graduated from college and went into the workforce, um, I did a lot of copywriting. I've actually been published quite a bit, but it's mostly ads and commercials and copy for catalogs and, <laughs> and stuff like that. That counts. <laughs> In the bad. Yeah, yeah. So all that kind of stuff, um, a million different ways to describe window blinds and ceiling fans and all that stuff. Um, but I've always wanted to be a writer. And one of the things that did keep me going during that period in my life when I went, wasn't necessarily being spiritually or even entirely creatively fulfilled um, while working was I would write fiction. I would rewrite all of the stories. Like, you know, I was studying with the Sisterhood of Avalon. So I was studying all the stories in the Mabignogian and I would creatively rewrite them out into like longer, um, like fiction novels and things like that. And it was a way to connect with that part of myself and to keep it going and to do something that I found fulfilling. And then um, later, 
when I moved here to Alabama, I most of my writing honestly has been in developing course material for Way of the Weaver, which we can talk about later. It's a magical yeah. training program that I run with a friend of mine named Murphy Robinson. So I've been doing a lot of that kind of stuff. And I decided that I now had you know, the, the time in my schedule and like the mental availability to be able to actually write down an entire nonfiction book. So that's how I got around to writing Hades. Um, Before that, my publishing, um, other than for marketing type of projects, has mostly been anthologies. Um, There is an organization called Biblioteca Alexandrina. You might have heard of that. Mm -hmm. They do a lot of anthologies. Um, So I wrote for one of their recent anthologies. Um, It was about Hades. I wrote a piece in there about Hades as a household patron. And then I also uh, was involved in this really cool project that's still going on. You can get these books uh, anywhere that they're sold called The Feminine Macabre. And there's five, uh, five, yeah, five uh, volumes of this journal. And it's a journal of the paranormal. <laughs> and what's cool about it is all the articles in the journals are written by um, people who identify as female or as non-binary. So right. um, a lot of voices that you normally don't hear in the paranormal industry. And it's a very cool project. So I would encourage people to check it out. Um, I wrote a, an extensive article about the art of scrying. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. And um, can we talk about your your fiction writing as well? Oh sure. <laughs> yeah. Um. So the the project that is near and dear to my heart, uh, from the fiction perspective, is a rewrite of the second branch of the Mabinogian, which is called Bronwyn, Daughter of Lear. And, oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I really love uh Bronwyn. Um. In the Mabignogian, you know, which we have to keep in mind is that the Mabignogian was written down by Christian monks in the medieval period from much probably much earlier oral uh, storytelling traditions. So you can definitely tell that there is a Christian patriarchal overlay <laughs> in these stories. Yeah. And and Bronwyn's story is very powerful. It's a story of being um, separated from family, um, treated horribly, and um, figuring out how to empower yourself to rescue, um, to get yourself rescued out of this situation, to do what you can, and then trying to make peace between warring factions, which ultimately fails. And there's a lot of heartbreak at the end of the story. And, it, you know, it's it's interesting because a lot of people paint Bronwyn as um, a victim of circumstances. And I think she, I think her story holds a lot of power, especially for, you know, our world right now, which is not a world that often has happy endings as far as, you know, current events and um, issues of justice and things like that. And I think, you know, showing her in a position of power with agency um, is, you know, I think that those lessons are there. And the the technique that I take to write fiction is the same technique that I use in nonfiction projects too, because I use trance journey as a technique for writing. So I will go into trance journey. And if I'm, you know, writing about Bronwyn, I'll go and uh, ask to speak with her. And she and I will discuss like what part of the story I'm writing down. And I'll ask her to tell it to me in her own words, like what she would want people 
to know, especially people at, you know, the people that might be reading it at this day and time. And then I'll come back and write. So that's where, you know, my Awen, my inspiration comes from. Are there any fiction writers that you particularly like? Oh my gosh, so many. I <laughs> I am I consume so many books. <laughs> I probably read at least one, if not two, fiction books a week. I love them so much. Um some of my favorite writers these days um really like V.E. Schwab. Um they wrote mm. the Shades of Magic series, which oh, is yeah. really, really good. Um kind of uh jumping on sort of the 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 uh, young adult train. I know a lot of people are on this kind of this fan train. I do like Sarah J. Moss and all of her books um, about the Fey realm. I love those. Let me see. Oh my gosh, there's so many. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, kind of a tough question to throw at yeah. people. Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, I, I've not read. Um, I've not read all of them because I sort of, I got sidetracked and went sort of into more fantasy, but I used to always be very into the Diana Gabaldon series, the Outlander series, like before oh, it was yeah. on Netflix, it was books, yeah. right? And like yeah. they started coming out when I was in college and for a long time, uh, Diana was my, my idol of who I wanted to be when I grew up, right? <laughs> and I had the chance to meet her once at a book festival in Atlanta. And of course, like, fangirled all over the place and asked for, you know, her signature and took a picture with her with a very cheesy grin on my face. And I have to say she was very gracious. She was, she was a lovely, lovely person. I've heard nothing but good things about her from people who are her fans. They just say she's very, very gracious and giving. I would say so. Yeah. All right. So I want to talk about your upcoming book, Hades, Myth, Magic, and Modern Devotion. So what led to you choosing to write about the god Hades, and um, wh where did where did where did the studies begin here for you? So I started working with Hades in. Okay, well let's back up. We we talked about my first ritual, right? My very first right. ritual in my tiny little apartment. Um, when I did that ritual, I included a trance journey uh, in that ritual, and I I left it kind of open ended. I was going to go to. Um, this place in the other world. It's basically a, a field, like a big open field um, that my ancestors tend. And I was just gonna go there and see what kind of guide or God entity, who, who would show up for this very first sort of initiatory thing that I was doing. And the one that showed up was Persephone, honestly, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, which was interesting. And I thought it was lovely. And it was, it was, it was a beautiful trance journey. Um, she was very kind. It felt really great to uh, make a connection with her on that night. But, and it may have been foreshadowing, but I had no idea at that point in time um, how much the underworld would come to mean to me. Because for so many years, I worked primarily in a Welsh pantheon. I did not really work with the Greek pantheon. Um, in 2016, I was on a uh, ritual facilitation team for Vermont Witch Camp. And the theme of the camp was Persephone's descent. So they wanted to use the story of Persephone going to the underworld as like the story arc for camp and kind of plan all the workshops and rituals and things like that around it. And on the facilitation team, uh, there were 
four of us, and we decided that it would be a good idea to each take on kind of one of the, the primary roles in the story and then go and do the research and bring that back to the team so, so that we could help craft ritual and that we could, um, you know, really sink into those roles. And, you know, I thought they would probably ask me to be Persephone <laughs> just because of my age and my feminine presentation and everything. Um, but they didn't know somebody else wanted that role. And I just waited till the very end to choose and no one had chosen Hades. So that's how that's who I chose. <laughs> Honestly, I chose Hades at the time. I remember thinking, well, I really super love working with the energy of Caridwin. I would consider myself, uh, Caridwin is very near and dear to my heart. And I'm like, you know, the energy that most resembles that, that I'm familiar with is Hades. So that's, I, I mean, that was kind of the basis behind my choice. And um, that's where it all started. And the challenging thing was I was trying to do my research, right, for the facilitation team. And there's not a lot out there about Hades. And that was really frustrating to me. Yeah, I remember that too. Like I remember too that over the years, like if you wanted, there'd always be like a an odd um, Llewellyn book that would have like you know a god's name and then like one attribute, which is endlessly frustrating. Because I remember wanting mm -hmm. to um, do devotions to Hades like years ago, and looking up stuff was very hard to find anything about Hades. It was really a, a chore to find even their most remote stuff. So I imagine it must have been tough for you to do research. It was really tough. And, you know, I wanted to, um, you know, part of my background and training, and this if this came from the Sisterhood of Avalon, was the idea that layering on correspondences gives you like a bigger and bigger magnet almost. So if you're looking yeah. to draw energies to you for magic or for ritual, the more correspondences you can layer, the more powerful that's going to be, the easier it's going to be able to get them. And, you know, with so little out there about Hades, I basically just experimented. <laughs> <laughs> to find like, you know, what incense should I burn for him? What sort of stones align with him? What sort of, you know, herbal things align with him? What colors does he like? And just like I said, my ride, like in my writing process, I spent a lot of time um, in trance journey talking to him and asking him about it. Your, your work is, um, I want to really let people know that this is a very comprehensive scholarly work as well you know, as having other facets as well. I'd be hard pressed to like kind of type this book, you know, as a librarian, I hate to do that anyway, but um, I really like the scholarship here and that there was a lot of different facets to the book, which I really liked because I really picked up that from Hades and you're talking about Hades, there's a lot of different facets there. And I think there's been a lot of miscommunication and bad press through the, through the last few decades that I've seen about Hades. What do you think are some of the mis- misunderstandings people have about Hades. Yeah, well, thank you so much for mentioning the scholarship in the book. I combed through resources, <laughs> every piece yeah. of art, every scrap of literature, uh, phrase from a play, phrase from an epic poem that I could find um, to, you know, to kind of cobble together some of that stuff. Because, you know, going to primary sources is really, really important to me. I think that, you know, we have a foundation in those and then we can go for the Gnosis piece. Um, 
there's a lot of misconceptions about Hades. I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that he is equivalent with the Christian notion of the devil and that the yeah. underworld is equivalent maybe with the Christian notion of hell. And yeah. that's um, that's actually sort of a lost in translation mistake that was made in the early days of trying to consolidate the scriptures and the Bible. Um, there are a lot of concepts uh, in in, in ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek that um, you know that, that sort of that have that are similar, but as they got translated and as they became part of Christian tradition, they were really sort of misinterpreted. And so you know, but if you look at it, if you look at the source texts and you look at the beliefs that people had, um, Hades and the devil are two completely distinct entities. <laughs> <laughs> with different yeah. personalities and different purviews. Um, you know, I always say it's two entirely different mythologies and sometimes they, they get confused and they get mishmashed. And I think that's the biggest thing. I think the um, another huge misconception about Hades is that, um, is that he, he doesn't really have any involvement or, or care about the living. <laughs> <laughs> that he only yeah. cares about the dead and he only cares about um, getting more of them for his domain, which is is certainly not true. Um, Hades is, you know, even in the ancient world, Hades was definitely involved in the life cycle. We have ancient pieces of art where Hades and Persephone are sitting together um, as guardians of a harvest and of fertile earth because, you know, yeah the you know it, it speaks to the way that life and death go hand in hand i mean things have to die to create soil in which we plant seeds to grow things to feed ourselves or to feed the animals that we slaughter for food and so there's this whole cycle of hades being involved in more than just guarding the underworld so you know i think those are some of the some of the misconceptions one of the things that i find um a little annoying, honestly, <laughs> uh, when I read about it, is that uh, if Hades gets mentioned in magical books, um, it's more so that either, you know, he can either be the patron of a ritual where you're trying to contact your ancestors, or you, you can ask him for abundance and money and wealth, <laughs> because that's one of the, you know, that's one of the things that is in his purview. And I oftentimes, I, I mean, I've never heard him say anything negative about it, but I often ask him, I'm like, so do you get tired of people asking you for money all the time? Because <laughs> I think that, you know, I think he likes it when people knock on his door for other things. <laughs> Oh my God, like kind of like the dad with the wallet, you know, all the kids are coming yeah, to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I need, I need, I need an increase on my allowance. I need an advance, dad. How do you think that people can, how do you think that Hades can help people with their lives? Like why would, um, if somebody want, was attracted to Hades and I felt like I have been, like you mentioned the artwork depicting Hades and Persephone. I was very attracted to um, the images of Hades with like a sheaf of grain next to Persephone yeah. that always really drew me and the mm -hmm. cycle of the harvest season that I've always really been very drawn to that. What do you think, how could you think that uh, Hades can help somebody who wants to work with, with him? Well, I think you can, there's a lot of ways that, that he can help. Um, Hades is a, an, an incredibly protective energy. So if you're encountering situations where you're feeling unsafe or when you want to call in some guardian type of energy, um, Hades is incredibly, uh, incredibly, incredibly protective. 
um, not so much from a warrior type of, of standpoint, but more from a grounded, um, stable, um, centered kind of place. Um, you know, I, it's like he has such gravitas that he doesn't really need to um, swing a sword <laughs> to be intimidating. So, you know, he can yeah. definitely help with that. I think that he can help with having a, you know, I, I like, you know, he's, he's called the host of many, Polydegmon, it's one of his epithets. And it really refers to him being the host of all the shades of the dead that reside in the underworld. And I think about the fact that no one is ever turned away from the underworld. Um, as long as you have your coin and you can pay Charon to cross the sticks, you're not turned away. Um, and there's this, this idea of hosting was really, really important in the ancient Greek world. And hosting was almost a divine responsibility. And, you know, Hades being called the host of many, it takes it to like, you know, an infinite scale of, of being a host. And, you know, I think he can teach us about how to be good hosts to other people, um, to be good hosts to ourselves and our own hearts through taking care of ourselves. And also with an existential sense of belonging, like when, when we're lonely, because we do, um, you know, if, you know, it, we do, we belong, we belong in the underworld. We belong with Hades. There are no misfits there. Um, so I really love that. I love that about him so much. He has a sense of, for him, time almost moves on a geologic scale. So his perspective on things is very helpful, especially if you're in a spiral of thinking of catastrophe or worry or anxiety or things like that. He can really um, kind of ground you back down in reality and remind you to just take a deep breath. So there are a lot of things about him that that I find very, um, yeah, it's all it's almost like having it's almost like having a home where you know you're going to be safe and well fed, <laughs> taken care of, and just knowing that you have that to rely on is is, I don't know, it's incredible. It's incredible in a, in a world where so many things seem like they're shifting. I like that. Now, do you have any advice for somebody who wants to devote their, um, their worship to Hades? Yeah. I mean, maybe don't ask him for money right away. Right. <laughs> yeah. Let's not maybe. do that. Yeah, let's not do that right off the bat. I mean, you can ask him to provide things for you. Um, I have, you know, very, I have good friends that that have stories about him providing things. And he's certainly provided me with some things that I, that I wanted in unexpected ways that I have not, you know, I, he just, because we spend a lot of time together, knew that I wanted them and then they show up, which is really phenomenal. Um, if you want to get started with Hades, I would say get to, you need to get to know Hades beyond what we see in like the Disney movies or Hades Town on Broadway or <laughs> the Laurel Olympus webtoon. Like all the Hades and Persephone are so popular. They continue to be popular. They've been popular for millennia. Um, but, you know, he's either villainized or romanticized a, a lot. And he's far more complex than that. And the only way to get to know him is by spending time with him. Um, 
maybe going to some of those primary sources, looking at some of the ancient artworks, looking at, you know, some of the ancient texts. I think, you know, the first thing I always encourage people to do is to start building an altar because then you have, you've actually made a physical space where you're inviting him to come into your yeah. life. He had, you know, it's like pulling out a chair at your table for him to sit. And I think other than that, just being quiet and listening a little bit to what he might have to say. One of the most basic um, devotional practices that I have, and I write about this in the book, is saying a prayer or hymn to Hades at sunset twilight. Um, it's a liminal time. And it's when the sun is setting in the West. And according to mythology and some sources, um, the realm of the underworld is just beyond the setting sun in the West. And it's a really nice, quiet time. And I like to say a little prayer. I say a prayer that I've written, but you can certainly write your own or you can go and um, use the Orphic hymn. There's an Orphic hymn to Pluton. Um, I like the translation that Patrick Dunn did. I think that's a really good translation. Um, and just read it to him as an offering. And I think also I like sometimes, you know, singing the same chant or repeating the same prayer over and over because over time in that daily practice of it, it starts to sort of um, unravel and reveal more and more of itself and more and more meaning. And yeah, I think that that's where I would tell someone to start. Maybe think about building an altar and maybe think about, you know, saying a little daily prayer. I like that. Are there any challenges to working with Hades? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, would, I think that would go with any deity. You could really describe yeah, it probably. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, certainly. But it, there are some unique ones with Hades. I think um, one of the unique challenges, like I said, he's either villainized or romanticized a lot. And so, you know, when you tell people you work with Hades, even if you tell pagans <laughs> that you work with Hades, sometimes you get a very averse reaction, like, you know, just kind of a, oh, God, don't come near me <laughs> reaction. And I don't know if that stems from kind of the ancient idea that, you know, there weren't a lot of statues of Hades or if there were, his head was kind of turned. So, that it, you know, it was not he was not directly gazing into the eyes of the viewer because people were afraid to even kind of call in the presence of death or the, you know, the Lord of the dead. So it might be that it might be a very human aversion <laughs> to death. It could also be a little bit of a Christian hangover, you know, so that stuff is hard. Um, the other stuff, the other thing that's really hard that you're going to have to come to terms with if you want to work with Hades is Persephone and the abduction and how you handle that because that is not an easy story it is not an easy bit of mythology and you know it's the as far as Hades goes it's the biggest piece of primary source text we have the Homeric hymn to Demeter uh, too and it's the abduction of Persephone and you know I think it's really important to not try to gloss over the violence in that myth and I think it's also important to understand that, you know, when you've spent time with it and come to terms in it in, in whatever way is meaningful to you, you cannot expect others to do the same, especially if others have experienced trauma. Um, and, you know, you should always respect their opinions, respect their feelings and not brush them under the table. So I think that that's something um, that can de definitely be challenging. 
What's the biggest takeaway that you want the reader to take from this book after they read it? Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, That's again, a tough question. I, I think I probably asked too many, hard, a lot of hard questions. No, I, I actually love it. I love being challenged. I'm like, there's so many takeaways. I don't know if I can narrow it down to just one. Um, I think that, that Hades is, the takeaway is that Hades is multifaceted. Yeah. And that death is not something that we necessarily need to be scared of. I like that. I mean, I really am very grateful. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's nice to see some books on specific deities that are fleshed out and have a lot of complexity to them because so often we've been giving this like cookie cutter thing, like this God's for love. This God's for intelligence. This God's for, I don't know, <laughs> yeah. real estate value. I don't know. Like, it's like, yeah, you yeah, have like, yeah. and we, it's just, I kind of like, you're like, okay, that does nothing for me. Thanks. And it just, because it can be really difficult when you're trying to build a spiritual practice. So I'm really grateful. And I just love the fact that this book has so much to offer. I wanted to also ask, because I'm curious, how long did it take you to write this? Because I'm looking at it and there's a lot here. How many years did you spend working on this? Um, that's a really funny question. <laughs> um, so I it, it came together quite fast, honestly. Um, no way. I no, it did. It did. Um, probably because I am an epic journaler. I journal every morning. Um, I follow the uh, the artist way. The have you ever heard yeah. Julie Cameron's artist way of doing the morning yeah. pages where you like highly recommended. Free, yeah, you like freehand write three pages every morning. I do that. I, you know, I take, I, I'm never going to be able to remember all the details later. So when I do trance journeys or I, I have some sort of dream communications, I will write it down. So I had a lot of this stuff in journals. So there was a lot of just transcribing that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the, you know, of course there was the trance journey pieces um, because there are some lyrical pieces in there where I, I yes. speak in Hades voice. Um, so I did to do the trance journeys and the research when it actually came down from like the time um, Llewellyn gave me a contract and the time that I turned in a manuscript. Um, my, my first draft was about five months of writing. So um, and that, you know, that was a lot. My my magic is my magic and being a priestess like is my profession right now. So I do have the advantage of not having a day job. <laughs> <laughs> per se, uh, because I'm self-employed. And, you know, so other than teaching and uh, appearing at conferences and other things, I was pretty much writing full time. And um, so it came together quite quickly. And, you know, honestly, the the thing that took the most time was tracking down and citing all of those primary sources, really. The, the rest of it, um, as far as like what to include in the book and, you know, what Hades had to say about it, uh, you know, there's a lot of things in here that have come from multiple years of teaching. I think I've been teaching for over a decade now. So, you know, a lot of it was just kind of pu pulling things from journals, pulling things from coursework, um, you know, finding those uh, resources to cite. So, yeah, it surprised me, too, that it came together so fast. Yeah, because that's impressive considering, you know, it's really got a lot in there. It's not, it's no lightweight book. It's got a lot. Um, <laughs> Thank you. This is a out of left field question, but I'm just curious. Have you ever had, have you ever seen any depiction of Hades you thought was good in a, a modern film or theater production? Modern film or theater. Um, 
Well, I was lucky enough to see Hades Town on Broadway. And I, um, even though Hades is, uh, I wouldn't say he's a villain per se in that musical, but excuse me, he is um, kind of representative of the, it's, you know, the musical is sort of an allegory for um, some of the modern woes we have, like uh, endemic poverty and climate change and all of those things. And Hades is kind of the, sort of the, you know, the, is holding up that end of the story, right? Yeah. But I did like, um, I did like the portrayal of him as someone who got so involved in his work that he sort of lost his way, like lost, he lost his way from what it, what, how, where he started in the beginning, why he was doing it. And, you know, sort of, it grew distant from his partner, grew distant from Persephone. I thought that they made him a bit more human and he's usually, you know, portrayed as being stoic. <laughs> and I liked that. I thought it was good. They did a really good, um, uh, Anais Mitchell did a really good job with that. Uh, let's see. There are- Have you seen um, uh, Jean Cocteau's uh, Orphe? I don't think I've seen that. I'll have to check that out. You should. Uh, Orphe in this one, um, it, it was made in the, I think, late 40s, early 50s. And it was an avant-garde okay. production of the story of Orphe. And okay. uh, Hades was portrayed as a beautiful black-haired woman who is very regal. Mm. A very fascinating take on it. I highly recommend it. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm totally going to look that up after we get off this call. <laughs> I'm, how do you feel um, about him being portrayed? At, people are going to think about James Wood's portrayal of yes. Hades. It's like that's going to yeah. stick in people's heads. The, yes, the James Wood is the voice actor behind Hades and yeah. Disney's Hercules. Yeah. <laughs> For those who don't know who James Wood is, yeah, and that's the the cartoon version where Hades has uh, like like blue fiery hair. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and speaks Yiddish occasionally. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's uh yeah it's it's pretty far out and also he's scheming against olympus and you know yeah. he, he he that happens a lot in like uh you know comics or cartoons or things like that and, and in reality hades has no interest whatsoever about yeah. what goes on on mount olympus yeah so i want to talk to you about a project that you're working on that is really big and very important it is the Way of the Weaver pro project. Um, can you talk yeah. about this a little bit? Yeah. Um, well, Way of the Weaver actually was one of the um, beautiful things that Hades himself brought into my life. So the, the tie-in is um, my friend Murphy Robinson lives in Vermont. And at that Vermont witch camp, we did a lot of magical work together uh, with Hades. And after camp, um, Murphy reached out and wanted to kind of keep the conversation going over email and kind of keep in touch. And uh, about about three, two, three years later, uh, Murphy was like, you know, I would really, really like it if you could come up to Vermont and maybe teach uh, me and a couple of my friends some of the skills that, that I saw you using at camp because, you know, I really want to learn. I'm like, oh, yeah, like we can totally do that. Let's, let's work that out. And many, many conversations and a pandemic later, <laughs> um, Way of the Weaver was born. And we called it Way of the Weaver because what we wanted to do was develop a program um, that combined magical study and inquiry with social justice work and also with community building. 
And we wanted to do it in a way that we almost were teaching magic, like a open source skill set, like a technology or a toolkit that you could take. And then no matter who you are, if you were a skeptic, if you were a pagan, even if you're a Christian, we've had Christians in our classes or, you know, anybody can kind of take these magical tools, take this little toolkit and use it, uh, you know, use it in a way that will benefit their their practice and their belief system. So that's kind of where this this came from. And uh, unfortunately, the first year when I was going up to Vermont to teach classes, uh, the pandemic hit, the COVID-19 pandemic. And so that had to be put on hold. And then Murphy and I kind of pivoted and uh, started teaching online modules. We've taught uh, several really amazing modules. They all last about three months. We've ta uh, taught a module on spell work. We've taught a module that we call Divination for Liberation, which explores some different divinatory tools. We've taught a radical devotion class on how to have a radical and modern relationship with the gods. <laughs> um, we have taught a class on death priestessing, which is a subject that's near and dear to my heart, of course, being a priestess of Hades. And Murphy is a hunter and also teaches hunting classes. So they also do a lot of things with, um, you know, with giving animals a sacred death. So, um, yeah. you know, we've done programs on all kinds of things. And we've taught at this point, um, we've been able to get back to doing some things in person. In fact, we have a weaver camp, a four day camp coming up in July. That's going to be fun. Nice. And um, we've had over 200 people, 200 uh, different people cycle through, you know, either one or more <laughs> of the modules and learning programs that um that we've put out there so we're really excited it's a really great little community we try to make it um a place where it's very inclusive and people feel like it's a safer space for them to be it's a very queer centric space yeah. and where we try to again work for the arc of justice in the world so we try to uh, you know, halt microaggressions. We try to uh, make sure we're avoiding or being sensitive to cultural appropriation and things like that. So it's a really unique program. And it just, it, Hades kind of put Murphy and I together <laughs> all those years ago. And, you know, we don't, obviously we don't focus on him because we want this to be, you know, more of like a an open source type of thing that people can use with their own belief system. But it's a nice gift. It was a nice gift. And um, yeah, like I said, we have a camp coming up this summer and then uh, next winter and starting in January, 2024, we'll be teaching the death pre-stixing module again. So yeah, you can check it out. We have a website, wayoftheweaver.com, and Murphy and I put out a podcast where it's basically just the two of us chatting back and forth and telling kooky stories about ourselves as baby pagans. <laughs> oh, um, is this, that, that's going on now? You have that podcast now? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Oh my God, we I want to listen um, to this. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> we actually just, this just five episodes in, we recorded the fifth episode this morning. So it's been a big podcasting day for me. And, what is that uh, called? Yeah. It's just called Way of the Weaver. We just named it the same name as the program. Oh, yeah, And it's on so all cool. the major, okay. yeah, all the major apps have it. So wherever you like to catch your podcasts, you can find it. Well, listen, to, I'll put a really... link on the website too. I'll put a, I'll put a link in the bio so people can find that. Yeah. It's, um, it's a beautiful group of people beautiful group of people and all people who care about justice and and just you know want to be in in spiritual community that that doesn't have a lot of rules or expectations i mean 
all the things you're talking about sound so important. I mean, I, I think that the dealing with microaggressions, mm -hmm. you know, we can say that simply, but it's such a huge thing. And it has been something that is, it is the crack that broke the dam of many pagan communities I've seen, like, especially here in the Bay Area. And just like also, you know, so many things like learning to deal with um, different members of the LGBT community, you think that would be a given in the pagan communities, but in many cases it hasn't. And many times people don't know how to react or interact. And there's been so many things here. Was this kind of born of like some stuff that you've seen in different pagan communities where you thought this is something that needs to be addressed? Because I think finally people are starting to do things like this now where they're seeing how pagan communities have been falling because of all the strife from people not getting along and not knowing how to talk to each other. Did this come from a place of, you know, where you guys saw this and wanted to kind of fix the issue? It came from a place of, yeah, I mean, Murphy has been a pagan and a magical practitioner um, almost as long as I have. Murphy's a bit younger than I am, but we've been, both of us have been doing this for, you know, over two decades. And Murphy had um, gone to a lot of reclaiming events. The reclaiming community is um, very well known for their activism. And of course, yeah. I kind of came in from a different way. I kind of came in from Sisterhood of Avalon, which I was always really proud about the, the SOA was one of the very first organizations that um, decided, and it was a women's organization, but we made, I was on the board of trustees actually when we made the decision to allow anyone who identified as a woman to join. You know, I mean, we didn't, you know, we didn't ask, we didn't clarify, we just, you know, if you identify as a woman, you're welcome here. Um, so I was, you know, and, and, but, you know, that all came right before some of the things you were talking about. I used to go to a women's festival in Pennsylvania every year. And I had um, gotten, I started going in 2005. And this was probably about 20, I want to say 2015, 2016. I had gotten to the point where I was not only presenting, I was sometimes facilitating the large, like all camp rituals. And I was working on the staff and I was like really, really engaged and involved with this festival. But unfortunately, um, the festival uh, producer, the producer decided that this was going to be a space for only those who were assigned female at birth. So something that had been part <sighs> of my like yearly, it was like a yearly family reunion, honestly, it was part of it was such a huge part of my spirituality. But I had to walk away when that decision was made, because I don't, that's not you know, that's not my, <laughs> that's not, that's not in line with my ethics and morals and my code of honor. So yeah, mine either. Um, yeah. So I had to walk away and that was such a huge loss. It was a huge, huge loss in my life. And, um, you know, when we started creating way of the weaver, Murphy and I had several long discussions about things that were important to us and in setting up, um, group culture, right? I mean, we sit down and we make group agreements uh, every time that we, every time that we start a class or a module or the camp or anything, the very, the very first things we do is we introduce ourselves. We all put an item on the altar and then we all sit and make group agreements about how to be in the space together. And of course, Murphy and I facilitate it, but it's, it's a group consensus discussion. And, you know, it's not always easy, but it's worth it um, because people get a chance to feel like they are actively participating and consenting to what's happening, um, which consent is a huge, huge problem sometimes in pagan spaces. And every, it kind of sets the tone, you know? 
so that we know how to treat each other. And we have protocols for, you know, if a microaggression occurs or if somebody, um, you know, forgets to ask consent before, you know, touching someone on the shoulder or hugging them or something. We have protocols that are safe and gentle where we gently correct, correct each other. And then we utilize, we do what the little kids do. We do a do-over. We just call a do-over. And, yeah. and everybody gets a chance to practice it again. And, um, you know, it's great. It's really great. Um, and those things are so, I mean, they're this is so important to the program. So not only do we, I mean, I, I consider all those things to fall under the justice piece of what we're doing. There's like the magical inquiry piece, there's the community piece, and this is all part of the justice piece. I mean, what you're doing is so important. I'm real. I really, you know, encourage people to look into this. I'll put the link in the bio because I, I, this kind of work is so fundamental to picking communities, and you know, really needs needs to be kind of brought brought to the front, and people need to be doing this more because we can't avoid this stuff anymore. We have to be working together for positive uh, ends. Jamie, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I've really enjoyed getting to talk to you, and I, I can't wish you enough success for your new book, but I don't think you're going to need it. It's pretty amazing. And I think people are going to love it. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Well, it will, um, the print release is scheduled for February, 2024. Um, If you're interested in checking out the cover and the, what the publisher has to say about it and a few of the early editorial reviews, all that stuff is up on the Llewellyn website. And I think you can even pre-order it if you want to. Okay. I'll put up a link for that too. Jamie, thanks for being on the podcast. I really enjoy getting a chance to talk to you. That was my conversation with author Jamie Wagoner. Her forthcoming book, Hades, Myth, Magic, and Modern Devotion, will be out in February of 2024. We have links to the programs and publications mentioned in this episode in the bio. Next week, we'll be talking to Linda Redich, the author of A Secret History of Christmas Baking, Recipes and Stories from Tomb Offerings to Gingerbread Boys. She is also author of Old Elfland, Secrets of the Broad Age to Middle Earth. You'll be hearing my conversation with her next week in Season 2. Until then, have a blessed week.